preaching today on Psalm 59, which, as I mentioned, is our Psalm of the Month for the month of February. Listen to these words. To the chief musician set to do not destroy, a victim of David when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Deliver me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, not for my transgression nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Awake to help me and behold. You, therefore, O Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. Selah. At evening they return, they growl like a dog and go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, Who hears? But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all nations in derision. I will wait for you, O you, his strength, for God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride. And for the cursing and lying which they speak, consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be. And let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Selah. At evening they return, they growl like a dog and go all around the city. They wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my defense my God of mercy. We've come to the last month of a year-long journey that we've been on, a journey that I've I've called learning to love the Psalms. And I hope it has ignited in you an, an interest and a desire to know the Psalms deeper and deepened your love for this really beautiful portion of God's word. I hope it contributes to your lifelong journey with Christ. And as we come to the end of the journey, really no journey in loving the Psalms would be complete without looking at what we call the imprecatory Psalms. The Psalms that speak of God's judgment against his enemies, not just speaking about it, but actually praying for it and praising God for it. 
I find that many people misunderstand the imprecatory psalms. They may even turn from them in revulsion. They might say something like this. How can we ask God to curse his enemies? Isn't God a God of love? How can we sing and praise God with such words as these? May God kill his enemies and show no compassion to them. Because of this misunderstanding, I hope to explain Psalm 59 in the context of the rest of Scripture so that you would understand what is happening here. So that not only understand that you would would believe it and incorporate it into your life, that God indeed does judge sin and Christ is coming again and will come with judgment and that judgment will be an everlasting judgment. Because of that, I pray that you would be able to sing this portion of God's word with understanding. There's a second reason I chose Psalm 59. It's because it's, it's right in the context of what I'm preaching about David. Do you notice the, uh, the title that is given to it? David wrote this when Saul sent men to his house to arrest him and to kill him. That's right where we are. That's right where David is. And, and we have been instructed by David's response to this, both good and bad. And Psalm 59 will contribute to our understanding of David and the understanding of our Christian life as well. And it contributes in this way. What I pray that you would understand about the imprecatory Psalms is that God is righteous in his wrath. Therefore, we pray, even so, Lord, come quickly. We'll begin by looking at the way in which the imprecatory Psalms provide us a prayer that God would deliver us. A prayer that God would deliver us. When Saul sent soldiers to kill David, David took his fear to the Lord, and he asked God to, to deliver him. Now, in 1 Samuel, we've been examining this, and there's been evidences of faith, and there's been evidences of fear and of failure in David. I pointed out the evidences of faith that are underneath the surface, that David, in the midst of his fear, goes to the offices, the anointed offices that the Lord had provided for, uh, for his children. He went to the prophet Samuel, to the kingly office represented in the prince Jonathan, and to the priestly office in Ahimelech, the priest. These were given so that the people of God would be ministered to. And just uh, imagine and just pause and, and, and recognize that in the midst of running for his life, that David writes this psalm. Now, in 1 Samuel, the weight is more upon his failure and his fear. And I pointed out how because of that fear that he lost sight of the promises of God. He elevated his own selfish interests and diminished God. And so some of his actions were not in keeping with his faith. But his faith is there. And Psalm 59 is an evidence of that. 
So if you or I were running for, if I was running for my life, I, I, I can't imagine taking time to write a psalm, to write poetry. But David does. It is an expression of his faith, but it's more than that. Remember that this is scripture, that the Holy Spirit himself was inspiring David to write this. Peter describes the prophets of the Old Testament being carried along by the Holy Spirit so that what they wrote was exactly what God wanted them to write. And that's going to help us to understand, help you to understand that the imprecations of the Bible have their place by God's design, by God's own inspiration. He gives us words that speak and pray for and praise God for the judgment that he brings against his enemies. But first, note that David prayed for deliverance. And as I've been doing through this series of learning to love the Psalms, I've pointed out the poetry. So in this case, you'll see that David throughout the Psalm weaves in indications of what he was facing. He speaks of the nature of his enemies. And in doing so, there's, there's this amplification of the desperate nature of David's situation that he cries out to the Lord in. You may even notice that that some of the Psalms use this word sila. Uh, that's a that also is something of a poetic device. Uh, Dave Carroll gave a really great uh, uh, adult Sunday school class mentioning this. It's a it's a word that says Stop and meditate on this. And here's David in the midst of his fear saying, stop and meditate on the fear that you are facing. Stop and meditate on the nature of that fear. And speaking of poetry, I love the way David compares his enemies to dogs, a wild pack of dogs who are running wild throughout the city. And I want you to imagine uh, uh, being cornered by this pack of wild dogs. And they are snarling and snapping and slobbering in their viciousness against you. Their teeth are as sharp as swords, says David. They bark and they howl, hungry for your blood. That's a terrifying picture, isn't it? David uses that poetry to try, uh, to evoke the terror that he faced and to help you to reflect on the terror that you may be in even today, to be able to reflect that to the Lord. Not only that, but David recognized the power of the man that was against him. It would be one thing to be set on by a pack of wild dogs. It would even be another thing if the enemy was was a recognized enemy, like a soldier, even a giant, Goliath, who's standing against him. But it's another thing altogether when it's the most powerful man in Israel 
who is against you, who is abusing his position and his power. He sent his soldiers, even though David had done nothing against the law. He had done nothing against Saul. He had been Saul's Saul's servant, his his hand, a captain of soldiers, to do the the will of, of Saul for him. And yet King Saul used his position and operated by his own power and authority above the law, abusing the law, to try to hunt down David. And so David took his fear to God. Deliver me from my enemies. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. Awake, awake to help me and see, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake. And in that earnest and fearful position of David, he gives gives words to that terror and that cry to God for deliverance, which suggests that this part of the imprecatory psalms we, we take to quite naturally. We pray for deliverance. We pray earnestly, eagerly, desperately sometimes for God to see and to hear and to deliver us. We believe that that God is God, that he is sovereign over all things, that he is faithful in his promises. We take to the imagery of God being our fortress and our defense. Hide me, O God, under the shadow of your wings. Because of who he is and because of his promises, we too can earnestly and desperately cry out to be delivered from our enemies. And like David, Christians do sometimes face real enemies that are seeking their lives, literally seeking to kill Christians. And this psalm provides words that you can pray for deliverance for yourself or for others around the world whose lives are at stake. But I want you to also note that care is needed here. It is easy to slide into personal vindictive vendettas against people around us. A spirit that that makes an enemy out of everyone and everything that makes you mad or inconveniences you, as if that person that cut you off in traffic today deserves God's wrath and curse. It's easy to slide into this personal uh, vendetta type of mode. But David leads us to pray from deli- for deliverance from, from God's enemies, who are indeed our enemies, but the orientation is important here. David's prayer brings our allegiance underneath God rather than vice versa, as if we are to make our enemies ask God to come and and serve us. Instead, David's prayer helps us to understand that 
there is an allegiance to Christ that orients this prayer for deliverance from the enemies of God. In addition, David's prayer helps you to see how the enemies that we face are are more than just physical, real people around us. That does happen sometimes. But like David, we also face spiritual enemies. Think of how David faced fear and temptation to elevate his own interests and to diminish God. Think of how the New Testament warns of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Think of the temptations that war against your spirit, the temptation to venture anger, the temptation to give rein to your sinful desires and lust, and to covet, to envy, to lie, to steal. These are real enemies, enemies of God and enemies of your soul. To put it in the language of Jesus himself, he teaches us to pray, deliver us, or uh, excuse me, to uh, uh, deliver us, or lead us not into temptation. I'm getting the Lord's Prayer all fumbled up. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is Jesus himself teaching us to pray for deliverance from our enemies, which is an element of this imprecation that Psalm 59 represents. Secondly, an imprecatory psalm is a prayer that God would destroy his enemies. And this is where some people will balk at the these prayers of imprecation. There's an aspect that we uh, are made somewhat uncomfortable by these words. Verse 5 says this, Awake to help me and see, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel. Awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. Do not be merciful. Then starting in verse 8, David is more direct in praying for the destruction of his enemies. And in order to, uh, to, to bring this out, I want to just go verse by verse and, and from verses 8 through 13 so that you could, can see and understand these prayers and praises of God's judgment against his enemies. Starting in verse 8, God proclaims the sovereignty of God over all things. So in verse 7, he has said that the enemies think that no one will hear. And implied by that is this idea that no one will know what they're doing. They're practical atheists. The enemies of God think that either God can't see or doesn't see or doesn't even exist. So will not or cannot do anything about what they are trying to get away with. But God knows all things. That's something that we uh, may even, uh, that we train our, our children to understand in our children's catechism. Does God know all things? Yes. Nothing can be hid from God. 
God knows all things. He sees, he hears. And nothing can withstand his holy purpose. He can do all his holy will. And that's something of a warning that the imprecatory psalms give. In other words, if you think that God won't know what you are doing, if you think there is no God, then you need to hear what David says in verse 8. But you, O Lord, will laugh at them. You shall have all of the nations in derision. God is indeed sovereign over all things. That means he sees and knows what the wicked do. And he rules over them, promising judgment, which comes in verses that follow next. Verse 9, David resolves then to wait upon the Lord. He says, I will wait for you, O his strength. Let me just pause there and say, well, whose strength is in view here? It might be referring to the enemy as his strength. It would come out there then as suggesting that the enemy is really strong. Be my defender, O God, because of the strength of the enemy. More likely, it refers to God's strength, his strength being God's. So you could translate it, I wait for you, O my strength. It might help you to understand it that way. It's God's strength that's exercised on our behalf. The point is that David, David knows what he's facing. This is why he weaves all the way throughout the psalm the, the vicious character of those who are seeking his life. He understands who they are and what they're like and, and prays about them. But even in the midst of acknowledging the strength of the enemy, he acknowledges even more the strength of God. And he confesses that his trust will be in the Lord God of Israel. Remember how David did this when he faced Goliath? As he entered the battlefield, he said to Goliath, you come at me with sword and spear. He's acknowledging the strength of the enemy that he faced. But I come at you in the name of the Lord God of Israel, and he will deliver you into my hand. That's an example of the way in which the faith of David expresses how he can rest or wait upon the Lord. And we do as well. The enemies that we face are powerful. The enemies from without and the enemies from within. It may seem like they will always have the upper hand. But God is sovereign. Christ has come and defeated Satan. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And so you may wait upon the Lord. He may rest in his power to save and to deliver. Which leads David to look to God for mercy in verse 10. To look to God for mercy. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. You see, step by step, David is, is, is examining the character of God and his response to wickedness. Well, what about mine? 
the sovereignty of God and his judgment against wickedness has a message for me too. And a message for you. For the Lord hates sin. What about me? What about you? The imprecatory Psalms impress upon us that we need mercy. And David prays for that in the midst of this imprecation. His request brings to mind that David knew that he could say, Saul is pursuing me wrongly. I didn't do anything wrong to deserve death. And yet, I am not innocent of sin. I too need the mercy of God. And as he prays and anticipates the judgment of the Lord against sin, it evokes in him this cry to the Lord for mercy and a confession that it says, this is what the Lord has promised. He has promised in the sacrifices. He has promised in the Messiah, the coming king and anointed one, that there will be a sacrifice of sin that satisfies God's judgment. And in that promise, I have hope that the Lord will show mercy to me. I cast myself on the mercy of God. And my hope is that the Lord would show me mercy. And we follow David whenever we pray to the Lord about our own sins. We can pray that the Lord would vindicate us when we are wrongly accused. But we also recognize, like David, that we are not perfectly innocent. It's right then, every day, to thank God for his mercies, which are new every day. The Lord taught us to pray this too, didn't he? Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. We acknowledge that the sin and temptation of the world does easily entangle us. And that we, without Christ, are under that judgment. So we pray for mercy. So then verse 11, David prays for God's vengeance against his enemies. Interestingly, he says, first of all, do not slay them lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power. Bring them down, O Lord, our shield. Later, in the next verses, David will pray for the utter consumption, the utter destruction of the wicked. But but he says, first, don't slay them. And it's an interesting revelation here that's made of certain characteristics and purposes of God's judgment. Sometimes in this life, we so easily forget the warnings of God's judgments. Uh, we're such an instant society that, that what comes in is gone five minutes later, it seems like. And, and the lessons that we learn just get shoved out of the back of the brain so quickly. Matthew Henry describes it this way. He says, the impressions often quickly wear off. 
but a gradual scattering and downfall makes a more lasting impression. So Matthew Henry uh, paraphrases this request, scatter them by your power and let them carry about with them in their wandering such tokens of God's displeasure as may spread notice of their punishment to all the parts of the country. This helps when you're in the midst of a trial. It's right to pray for deliverance. It's also right to remember that if God doesn't immediately deliver you, that he has a purpose in that. Remember, he is sovereign over all things. Verse 8, he doesn't always immediately deliver you. There are purposes for that. Sometimes God gives room to the wicked to repent. And the judgments that he brings serve to bring conversion of some. So there's a patience of the Lord that is oriented towards the wicked. There's another orientation that leaves them without excuse. The patience of the Lord sometimes allows those who rebel against Christ to heap up their unbelief and their sins and their rebellion so that there is a telling witness against them that the Lord had warned them, but they would not repent. Think here of Jesus praying over Jerusalem, weeping over them. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have comforted you like, like a hen sheltering its chicks underneath its wings. But you would not Testimony of God's judgment over and over again is a testimony to the wicked that they are without excuse. And there's a purpose for us as well. The Lord may delay his deliverance of you to help you to grow in your faith in him. It may be to help you not to forget his power and love that is with you in the midst of the trial that you face. And it may be a warning to you to wake up to a sin that you are, are clutching and clinging to. Then verses 12 and 13. David prays that God would give his enemies what they deserve. In this context, David mentions the lies, the cursing, the pride that is part of what was coming against him, let alone the attempts on his life. So in a sense, he prays that they would receive what they deserve. And this is what lies at the heart of the imprecatory Psalms. The wages of sin is death. This is what lies at the heart. The wages of sin is death. Consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be. 
the holiness of God leads to this conclusion. That the sin of all mankind deserves, deserves, even earns the wages of God's wrath and curse forever and ever. It leads to the conclusion that the wrath of God against sin is a righteous wrath. If you are uncomfortable or turn in revulsion at that concept, you've, you've missed the, the, the magnitude and glory of, of a holy God and that we as sinners have no hope of ever coming into his presence unless God would do something. We rightfully deserve God's judgment. And it is right for him to punish sin forever and ever in hell. And part of why we seem to be uncomfortable with this is that is that the anger of man is, is very different than the righteous wrath of God. Our anger is so mixed up. It is uh, so often polluted by our own selfish interests that it becomes an irrational and sinful outburst. That is not the anger of God. It is important to understand that the wages of sin is death. And if it's righteous for God to judge all unrighteousness, it is right for us to pray for it. It is right for us to acknowledge the holiness of God, to worship him for that holiness. And it does have implications to, that drive us to pray for our own mercy but it is also right to pray that the Lord would indeed judge his enemies. Jesus taught us to pray this too. Alan prayed this morning, your kingdom come, your will be done. The coming of the kingdom of Christ is at the expense of the enemy either by their conversion or by their destruction. Jesus himself taught us to pray this. And if it's right to pray for it, it leads to another conclusion. It's right for us to praise him for his wrath, which is what David does in Psalm six, in verses 16 and 17. This is the third point on the, on the outline that the imprecatory psalms praise God for his deliverance. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O oh my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense, my God of mercy. David has prayed for and 
even as carried along by the Holy Spirit, he foretells the judgment of Christ against the wicked. And then he praises the Lord for those very things. He praises God for the deliverance that he has received. He praises God for uh, for the vengeance that he brings upon those who reject him. And he praises God for the mercy that he has received. And interestingly, the very last uh, phrase, when he speaks of my God of mercy, he uses a word that I pointed out in, in David's appeal to Jonathan, a word that can be translated love. And most often when the scriptures apply this word to God, it's speaking of his faithful love, his covenant love. And the Psalter, the version that we'll be singing throughout this month, that uses love so that you would catch this. And I make this point so that you would see that the New Testament God, the Old Testament God, is a God of love. In the Psalter, it says, at the very last, last line, we praise God who is my fort, my God of love. These two are not at odds. The love of God and the holy judgment of God. They are both part of who God is. And he exercises them perfectly. Love and judgment. And he graciously offers love and forgiveness to all who would repent. But he warns those who will not repent that surely his judgment will fall. And that judgment has been given into the hands of the Son, Jesus Christ. And there will be a day in which he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That day is pictured as the Lord Jesus Christ coming bodily from heaven and sitting on a great white throne of judgment and opening up the books of his judgment and separating the living and dead. On the one hand are those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, who are received into glory because they have repented and asked the Lord for mercy. And a God of love dispenses that mercy to those who are trusting in him and welcomes them into everlasting life in heaven. But on the other hand, there are those who have rejected Jesus Christ who have heaped up their unbelief in their hearts and in their actions and in their despising of God. And the Lord warns that on that day of judgment, the Lord will say to those, depart from me, I never knew you. And they will be thrown into everlasting fire to suffer the judgment of God forever and ever. Christ has the right to do that. And Psalm 59 and all of the imprecatory psalms acknowledge this. They, they know and proclaim that the Lord is sovereign, that he is holy, that he is just, and that he is merciful and gracious. And they look forward in the psalms 
to the coming of Jesus Christ, to the one who would set all things right. And isn't it interesting that the entirety of of the book that we have been given, the entirety of scriptures closes with a prayer. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Oh, God, come. When I think those words, it is often in the midst of terror. It's often in the midst of distress. That that desire for deliverance gravitates. It, It rushes to the ultimate deliverance that Jesus Christ gives to us. And we're asking the Lord to come to deliver us from evil without and within. We are also asking that Christ would come in judgment. That he would set all things right. That all that is evil will be done away with. In us and in the world. And it's right for us to pray for that. It's right for us to rejoice in the mercy that we have received. It's right because it proclaims the righteousness and holiness and sovereignty of God. So I pray that as you sing Psalm 59 throughout this month, that you would do so with this intention. Let all the earth know that the Lord Jesus reigns supreme. Let all the earth know that he is coming again. Let all the earth know that when he comes, that it will will, uh, reveal the wrath of the Lamb and the mercy that he offers. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord God, we take up these words and they have often become words that we have selfishly used to seek deliverance and even destruction of those that that we have had a problem with. Lord, so often we have also hesitated to pray these words. Perhaps we shudder because we know that this holy judgment, when it's focused on me, makes me tremble. So, God, I pray for mercy because I know that I'm a sinner. And sometimes we have, we have not acknowledged your righteous and holy nature. We have diminished you and so have hesitated to pray and even praise you for your righteousness. Lord, with humility, we pray that your righteousness would be shown, that your judgment would be done, that you would be glorified, that you would be glorified by your actions whether that be in the judgment, the final judgment, or judgments in this life, 
or the mercy that you offer and exercise, bringing many to glory as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing these words then. Psalm 59, Selection B. Please stand to sing.